Well, good morning. Let me invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts, uh, the story of the church. And uh, if you've been paying close attention, we are going a little bit out of chronological order. Paul, uh, Paul, our Paul, Paul Hahn, was really excited to preach Acts chapter 16. It's one of his favorite passages, and he's out of town today. So I decided we would just skip ahead to do Acts chapter 17, and I'll give him the privilege of preaching his very favorite passage. And that's okay. I really like this one. This, our passage today is from Acts chapter 17, Paul on Mars Hill or in the Areopagus. And um, we're going to see how Paul is basically shows us how to bring the great truths and the beauty of the gospel to a world that is yet unknown to that to, to a world who doesn't know him that's a better way of saying it let's turn our attention now to god's holy word from acts chapter 17 starting in verse 16 now while paul was waiting for them at athens his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols so He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has, been given, uh, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and help us to listen to this, your word. Help us as we seek to Bring your word into this world as well. Lord, we are your chosen instruments. We are those who carry Jesus with us wherever we go. And so we pray that as we learn from your word, Lord, would it 
course through us, and would you be pleased to be glorified in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a couple of weeks ago, when it rained here in San Antonio, you know that one time a couple of weeks ago, I was driving home from work, and I go up San Pedro to get home. And if you know that drive, whenever it rains in San Antonio, the cross street Cypress is where all of the water collects. And so there's always just this huge puddle on the corner of San Pedro and Cypress. And so when you drive a car like mine, you don't want your undercarriage to get wet or your engine to die on you when that happens. I actually lose my power steering whenever I drive through a puddle. I don't know why that happens. If anyone wants to tell me why later, you can let me know. So I have to get over to the left lane, and you don't want to get the water in your car, and you don't want to splash the people who are inevitably waiting for the bus on that corner. But unfortunately, as I'm driving, I look in front of me, and there's a car, and this car is just zooming in the right lane right through San Pedro and Cyprus, and like sitting in the front row of a Shamu thing, right? The water is just a torrent and it hits a poor lady who's walking with her blanket and her Target shopping cart full of her belongings, one of our underhouse neighbors. And it just drenches her. And I hope the motorists didn't notice that they had done this, that this was just kind of an honest mistake. It was still really sad. But what was even more sad as I was changing lanes and continuing to drive is this lady who had just kind of went through a deluge of water, didn't even look up. She was just drenched, but she just kept walking forward, almost as if the difficulties and the hardships and the sadness of life had already put her underwater. So she didn't even glance toward the offending motorist. It's really sad. I tell you this story because when we read our passage today, we get a glimpse of a man who really does care deeply about people who are made in God's image. Just like this dear woman, truly made in God's image, a reflection of His glory and His beauty, so Paul cares about people who are made in that image too. Just like our conscience is pricked by the sadness of what happened to that lady, so Paul's conscience is pricked as well. Verse 16 tells us that Paul has made his way to Athens alone. He has some time that he's spending in the city. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas, his partners in ministry, to come and join him. And we don't know how long he's in that city, but he's there long enough to pick pick up on something important. Not just that this was that great city, that city of the philosophers of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. Not just that this was an amazing city full of culture and history and art and theater. But most importantly, that the city was, quote, full of idols. That word in the Greek is kata idolos. So kata meaning under, idolos meaning idol. It was literally deluged with idols, swamped with idols. One ancient historian, Xenophon, said that the city was like one vast temple and one vast, uh, one vast altar. Another ancient historian backs this up. He said it was easier to find a temple in Athens than it was to find a human person. And it hits Paul hard. 
He doesn't like it. He's not a tourist. He's not overawed by the sights. Rather, he is grieved by the altars. The word that, it, that uh, the Greek uses is he's provoked. We actually heard that word last week. It comes from, or our English word, paroxysm, comes from this word. Paul told us a little bit about it. Now, in English, that means, a paroxysm it means to suffer a sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. But there's actually something really interesting about this word. This word is actually in the imperfect. And what that means is that there's an iterative, it happens over time, growth of this idea or feeling or emotion in Paul. In other words, he wasn't all of the sudden taken by anger. Rather, it was something that was growing in him, an anger, a grieving, a sadness about what he saw in the city. This word, and to understand it, we also know that this word is the word that is often used when God is being provoked by the worship of other idols. So when Israel worships, for instance, the Baals, or when Israel creates the golden calf, God is provoked by their idolatry. What's happening here is that God knows that His unique glory can't be shared with a lifeless idol. Can't be shared with a lifeless idol. And so Paul follows suit. How could all of these people be giving glory to things that are no gods? Truly, glory is to be given to God alone. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we assume that a person who's really concerned with the glory of God would be what we might call a religious zealot, right? We might imagine that someone who's consumed with God's glory would be also someone who is ready just to tear things up, to, to argue with people, to yell at people who didn't believe in his way of life. And actually, we see this in Paul before he meets Jesus, Right? That was the way that we would understand who Paul was. He was ready to arrest people and take them bound to Jerusalem. He was ready to kill in his zealotry. But that is not gospel Christianity. Something changes in Paul. Look what he does this time. He doesn't take a sledgehammer and start breaking idols. No, it just says, verse 17, so he reasoned with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with anyone who would listen, with those who happened to be there. What's the heart of Paul and the heart of God here? Paul engages God's image bearers so that they would give glory to the only one who is glorious. You see, there's a direct line between God's glory and our good. When God is not glorified in us, then we diminish ourselves. When God is not honored among us, then we become dishonorable. When we exchange the glory of God for a lie, we actually harm ourselves. And when we care about other people, if you truly care about someone, you want them to honor and glorify God. So this leads us to kind of our central question that we have as we begin to expand this passage. It's a question for each one of us to think about in our own hearts. Do you care about God's glory so that you would be provoked 
by idolatry. Do you care about God's glory so much that you would be provoked by idolatry? Of course, we don't see the kind of idolatry that Paul sees today. We don't see people worshiping at altars generally. But does our culture's commitment to money and success grieve you? Do you know that it's not good for your friends to pursue those things? Does your friend's commitment to pleasure make you sad for them? Does your own longing for escape or success grieve you? It's an important question to ask ourselves. I'm not talking about being grieved by, like, the other political party. And I'm certainly not talking about getting angry because your football team lost yesterday. Are we deeply concerned that sin and idolatry are eroding the souls of the people that we love? Does that concern us? To care most about God's image bearers is to care most about God's glory. That's how it works. Or maybe we can say it another way. If you don't care that your friend is going through cancer that is hurting them, can you really say that you love them? God's glory is the healing of our souls. Idolatry is the cancer that harms us. Paul cares. What we're going to see is that he gives us a pattern for caring for people that are made in God's image. He expresses it in two ways. First, Paul connects with the culture of Athens. He wants to create rapport with them. He cares about them enough to connect with them. Second, he challenges the culture of Athens. He challenges it as well. So by extension, as we care about God's glory, we are called to connect with the culture and the people of San Antonio as well as challenge the culture and the people of San Antonio for God's glory and for their good. So let's just jump in. First, to love people well, we're called to connect with the culture and people. First thing Paul does is that he spends time with the Jewish culture, a culture he knows well. He goes to the synagogue, right? That was his custom in every town in which he visited. Every once in a while, he also goes to another place that he knows people might be having religious conversations. So in Philippi, he knows there's a place of prayer outside of the city. That's actually where Lydia is converted. But he has a very special opportunity in Athens, right? In Athens... All they did, verse 21 tells us, is spend time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. He knew he had a great opportunity to talk to the Greeks about the gospel. So he makes his way to that Athenian marketplace. It's there that 450 years earlier, Socrates perfected his Socratic method, right? This is a place where you go to talk about religion and philosophy. And he immediately, he strikes up a conversation with a couple of different philosophical schools, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Now, you don't need to know exactly what they believe. You just need to know this. They thought he was kind of crazy. They called him a babbler in verse 18. That word literally means seed picker. So the idea is that what they think that Paul has done is that he has just picked up a bunch of interesting tidbits from a bunch of different philosophers, and he's just parroting them back. They think he's a charlatan, a stooge. But some of them, 
some of them are starting to hear a little bit more. Maybe they're interested. They accuse him of introducing foreign divinities. The word is plural. So it seems like they actually think that he's talking about some guy named Jesus, a god, and some girl named Resurrection, a goddess. It's actually kind of helpful. Like They don't get him at all. It's helpful for me. It's encouraging for me, right? You try the best you can to talk about the gospel, and you know people just won't get what you're talking about. Thankfully, God opens a door for him, right? He says enough to gain a hearing, and they take him before the Areopagus. And that's a compound word. It just means the god of Mars and the Greek word for hill. So in older translations, you'll remember this as Paul on Mars Hill. Now, that Areopagus, it's just like the same way we use for the word senate, right? The senate could be a body of people or also a place. And so the Areopagus in this uh, day and age actually didn't meet on Mars Hill. They met in the marketplace itself at a place called the Royal Portico. And he was brought before this body whose job it was was to listen to and judge people's religious uh, preaching. He's probably not on trial. They're just trying to weigh what he's talking about. And throughout his speech, he tries really hard to connect with his learned Greek audience. At the beginning of your bulletin, I've printed some words from Paul's letter to the Romans, and this is actually helpful for us. He truly believes that people know God. Listen to what it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So he has a starting point. His starting point for connection with them is an altar to the unknown God. It's a little bit of an ironic altar, right? How could someone know that there was an unknown God? The admission itself opens the door for Paul, doesn't it? It's like someone saying in our current age, I know that there's got to be something more. That's what the Greeks are saying. Even though they're incredibly religious, they know there has got to be something more than this. What's really cool then about Paul is that he proceeds to tell them about God, but he doesn't quote Scripture to them. He puts it puts the knowledge of God in words that the Greeks could understand. Notice in verse 28, there's quotation marks. In him we live and move and have our being. That comes from a poem about Zeus, maybe by Diogenes or Epimenides. I couldn't sort out my Diogenes from my Epimenides, and I'm not sure you could either, right? It's from one of the ancient Greek poets. And he's trying to take an idea that is in Greek culture and apply it to the Greeks talking about the real God. Then again, in verse 28, he quotes a second poet, Eratus, for we are indeed his offspring, his children. Paul knows something. Everyone, by virtue of being made in God's image and living in God's world, in some way knows God. That knowledge is not a saving knowledge. That knowledge is a suppressed knowledge, but it's like a distant memory or a dream that you've forgotten about when you woke up. And Paul realizes that his responsibility as a Christian is to be like a spiritual Sherpa. 
helping the Greeks to connect the dots to the real and living God. Look at what he's doing. All of these concepts that he's talking about God are coming from the Bible. He just doesn't use Scripture, right? God is the Creator. He doesn't need us. He's the Supreme Lord. There are no local deities. He made all people, and all of them come from one location. He's the judge of the living and the dead. He translates the story into words they can understand, and this actually comes straight from God, right? In the incarnation, God in the person of Christ comes down to us bringing His truth in ways and words that we can understand. God doesn't wait for us to come and figure out how to get to Him. He comes down to us, and Paul is doing the same thing in the way that he's talking to the Greeks. Okay, let's apply this. Well, first, to connect with the people of our culture, it turns out I got to know some people in my culture, right? That's kind of a silly idea, isn't it? But it's important. Christians are not called to be some holy huddle of people who only hang out together. We're supposed to be public. We live in God's world. We don't want to just hang out with each other. Now, I have to admit, that's a little harder for the Beham family sometimes. I don't have any non-Christian co-workers, thankfully. Right? It's harder. My wife works from home as well. She works for a company that doesn't, is not from San Antonio, so she doesn't either. We had gained some ground. We knew some of our friends, our neighbors around us, but we just moved last semester. And so now we're getting to know new neighbors. And God really threw us a bone the other day. I was walking. This was, I think, last Saturday, maybe two Saturdays ago. And out uh, walking with his dog and son was a guy. And we introduced ourselves and he said, hi, I'm Matt. And I said, oh, me too. Like, I'm going to remember this guy's name. You know what I mean? It's always nice to have someone that you have the same name. And we were just talking. And I was like, yeah, Haley and I, we live up there on the corner of that house right over there. And I pointed to it and he said, who? And I said, Haley, my wife. And he's like, no way. My wife's name is Haley too. <laughs> it was just this beautiful moment. Just this beautiful moment where God was like, hey, here's a t-ball. Just hit it. Matt and Haley, you are not going to forget them. Maybe they're listening right now. <laughs> Hi, Matt and Haley. Isn't that beautiful? Like, just to get to know our neighbors, to connect with the people around us, is just to kind of cheer on your friend's baseball teammates whenever your friend's kid's baseball teammates, to know the people in the school, to just be a presence. All of those things are just super important when we think about connecting with the people of our world. Where's God calling you to connect? to know and be known. He's calling you somewhere. Second, we're called to grow in our ability to translate the great truths of the Scripture into words that our culture can understand. Okay, so I'll give you a little example. And uh, normally it's not good for a preacher to give an example from his own life, but I'll do it anyways. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Whenever I talk to, to students, so younger students, about how we can know God one of the things that I would often talk about is how like our God is to our world like Stan Lee is to Marvel Universe, okay? Stan Lee is the creator of the Marvel Universe. And I said, look, Spider-Man would have trouble scientifically getting to know Stan Lee, right? Like the distinction between creator and creature is so much that it would be impossible unless... Stan Lee wrote himself into the story of the Marvel Universe, right? And amazingly, 
He couldn't help himself. If you remember some of those early Marvel movies, Stan Lee often took a part, very small part. But this is like God is to us. God writes himself into the story of our universe, right? He writes himself into the story of a universe, not in some bit part, but everything declares his glory. And the main character is Jesus Christ himself, the very image of the invisible God. I think kids started to understand that. Every one of you has something that you love, something that you're interested in, something that overlaps with other people in this culture, a TV show that you love, a movie that you think is awesome, a sports team that you just, that you, you know, that you care more about than maybe uh, anything else, right? And in all of those places, there are stories that you're picking up, stories of redemption, you know, stories of hope, different players on the team that you connect with, ways that God has shown something about his character and the sacrifice or the beauty or whatever it is about that thing that you can then connect with other people who share that love and interest with you. I know it's hard to translate who God is into the symbols of our culture, but he has not left himself without a witness. His presence is everywhere, and you get to be that spiritual Sherpa to help show where he is. The third thing that I want to talk about when we connect with our culture is that we have so much more in common with people than we don't. That's by design. You are much more alike to everyone around you than you are different. We're all created in God's image. We all share hardships and difficulties in this life. Cancer doesn't care if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. It's hard to connect with our spouses sometimes, whether you're a believer or not. It's hard to love our in-laws. Amen? Right? All of these things are touch points, are touch points where we realize I am more connected to another person than I'm not. And God is calling us faithfully to be present in all of those spaces to help make God known. But we can't just connect, can we? We also have to challenge. Paul shows us how to challenge here. To honor God, love people well, we're called to challenge the people of our culture. If we continue on with that quote from the Romans, this is uh, from the, his letter to the Romans, this is what it says, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to them, but him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so Paul is going to challenge the Athenians. You'll see the first one is in verse 24. He says this, the God who made everything does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now that the words as though he needed anything is probably an allusion to another Greek author, Euripides, who writes this, God, if he be truly God, has need of nothing. It's interesting, Paul could have quoted Psalm 50, which would have been known to the Hebrews, right? That, he, that God, uh, the fullness of the world is his. But yet, Paul uses a Greek poet to challenge the religiosity of the Athenians. It's like he's saying this, hey guys, you know yourselves. You know yourselves that all of this is not really needed to worship God. And yet you do it anyways, why do you do it? See the challenge? Don't you see your religious blindness? 
Verse 26, he issues his second challenge to the Athenians, to the earliest mythology of Athens. See, the Athenians are the only group on the peninsula who actually believed that they were autogenes. They really believed that they had sprung forth from the soil of Attica. Everyone else could trace a migration from a different place into the region, but the Athenians believed that they were some sort of master race, that they were really better, and they would just be like, look at all the things that we have done. Obviously, we're better than everyone around us. So in verse 26, Paul challenges them. Nope. God made from one man every nation. You have no basis for believing yourself to be a master race. Come on, do you really believe that? But if that one-two punch wasn't enough, he reserves his knockout blow for verse 30. You've been living in times of ignorance. That's not exactly what it says. He says, look, those times of ignorance God has overlooked. In other words, these last many years of you being a city-state, you've been in ignorance. Now, some commentators would kind of ask Paul, well, Paul, why didn't you say that they've been living in sin? Paul knows better. As a cultural exegete, he realizes that calling them out for their ignorance would have cut to the quick even more, right? Athens is named after Athena, the goddess of wisdom. If the Athenians prided themselves on anything, it would be in their intelligence, their philosophy, their knowledge. And so to call them ignorant would have called them out at that point where they needed to be called out most. As Christians who love our friends well, our calling is to do the same thing, how to understand how to get to the heart of the matter with our challenge. Think about it like this. You probably won't get much more than a shrug of the shoulders if you're like, hey, you shouldn't use God's name in vain. That's too bad, right? But you might get a little bit more, it might even strike a nerve if you call someone out for their hypocrisy, right? Asking if her life choices are bringing her joy is probably better than saying, hey, you're sinning in your discontentment. Applying the golden rule would normally be better than the preamble, thou shalt not, right? Would you like other people to treat you that way? We're all called to be thoughtful in how we challenge those to whom we've connected. That hope for that challenge is the foothold for repentance, that this person would realize, okay, there's something wrong. I need a savior. But here's the question. Have you been able to challenge others? Have you been able to do that? If not, why not? We got to wrestle with that. Maybe it's our commitment in this society to be non-judgmental. I get it. We don't want to be mean. Like, no, don't be mean-spirited. Never be mean-spirited. But it kind of is backwards, isn't it? Why is Paul challenging the Athenians? Verse 31, so that they would escape the judgment of God. When we don't challenge others, we are being more judgmental because we are not giving an opportunity for a person made in God's image to escape the judgment of God. Second reason we might not do it is because it might show our hearts with regards to challenge. Why does God challenge you? Why does God challenge you? 
He challenges you like a doctor with a scalpel to cut out something in you that is harming you. Each and every one of us is challenged by God so that we would become healthy. Do you care that other people should become healthy too? I hope so. I really hope so. The heart of God's challenge to us is to wean us from the idols that are killing us and to invite us into Jesus' freedom and resurrection life. I hope you want that for other people. You and I are called to honor God, to love people. To do that, we've got to connect with people. If we don't ever connect with anyone else, we can't really say that we love people or honor God. But if we never challenge people either, we can't really say that we're honoring God or loving people. Right? Listen to what John Stott says as he sums up this passage. It's not only the comprehensiveness of Paul's message in Athens, which is impressive. However, it's also the depth and power of his motivation. Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully, deaf deaf to Christ's commission, and tongue-tied in testimony? When Paul sees the idols in Athens, he doesn't just kind of passing observe them. There's three words used for them, 16, 22, and 23. He saw, he perceived, he observed, he looked at, he considered, he thought about it, and over time it bubbled up with him. I've got to honor God's glory and love these people well. So let me ask us again. Do we ever grieve the idolatry around us? If you call yourself a Christian, you've got to. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know these are challenging words for us, but we also recognize, Lord God, that there is someone in our life, many people in our lives who have challenged us, and you have given us a listening ear. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be those people that were over the top or mean-spirited, but rather out of love and kindness. Lord God, work in us to connect with others and challenge them with the gospel. Do this, we pray, all for our good, for people's good, but especially for your glory. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.